Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. The difference between fanfic and a real novel is that fanfic is honest about its inspiration. Mary Robinette Cowell. Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. Hi, I'm M. Hello, I'm G. And in this episode of the KNP Podcast, we're going to be talking about fan fiction, history, purpose, and liberation. Yep. Yep, that is a topic that we are going to be doing today, and I am really excited about this. I am also very excited about this, and it's interesting because this was not where I was going originally with the topic idea. Oh, I remember the original topic idea. Yeah, my original topic idea was that I was going to force, force in quotes, G to watch three specific Jack Black films. Oh, I remember the original, original topic. Oh, the academia topic. Yeah. Yeah. Original, original idea was that I'd been stressing about academia because of my grant proposal. And I was like, I want to just bitch about it. And so I'm going to take over KNP just to bitch about the state of academia. And it's capitalistic, awful, classist, ableist systems. But then I was like, no, I'm I'm reclaiming my time and my energy now. I am. It's behind me, theoretically. And <laughs> I want to do something else. And so I had reached out to a friend and I was like, I need topic ideas. And friend suggested, what about like a film or something? And I was like, oh my gosh, what about Jack Black films? Because I love Jack Black. I think he's the sexiest man alive. This is known. This is known. And G hasn't seen like what, any Jack Black films? I've definitely seen him in something. I don't remember what. But I definitely have not seen School of Rock, which I know is one of the movies you want to watch. That was one of them. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a classic, personally. I had also thought about The Holiday because it ha- it could easily tie into polyamory. Not because it represents a polyamorous relationship, but because it calls into question, like, what is love and the different types of love that there are. And it's a really beautiful film, in my opinion. But then I ended up getting into a little bit of a debate with a friend. And it was around, like... My friend just didn't understand why do people read fan fiction? Why? And like, what is the purpose? And I read fan fiction. I like fan fiction. And I think it can be, it ranges in quality from absolutely terrible. Yeah. And to really, really amazing. And this is all subjective because I'm sure there are some really terrible fan fictions that some people are like, I love this. Yeah. I mean, it's partially like, I, I think like a matter of subjective taste. But also I think it's partially like, oh, it's like, this is the one fan fiction which has the scenario I want or the pairing that I want or is the coffee shop AU that I want. Exactly. And so I decided why not talk about fan fiction for our episode Yeah. and specifically talk about its purpose and history and in the context of liberation as a liberation movement. So in this episode, we're going to first discuss the history of fan fiction delving all the way back to, I say, Roman times because that was what you, G, had originally said that you wanted to discuss. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to go through history a little bit. We will discuss different purposes of fan fiction, including for self and community liberation, as well as for like academic purposes. And finally, we'll talk about our own experiences in writing and reading fan fiction and why we do it. Okay. So I think first off, to start out with the history lesson, G, why don't you take it away? So I think later on, you're going to talk more about sort of the modern conception of fan fiction, which I think has to do with sort of our modern day conception of copyright law. But it seems to me that the term fan fiction was a way to sort of differentiate between quote unquote professional authors or professional creators and quote unquote fan creators. And sort of sort of as like a mildly derogatory term in my opinion. And sort of the distinction supposedly is that, you know, professionals, again in quotes, will make their own unique works, while fan 
fiction writers will use other people's works to as sort of a as a crutch, quote unquote, to like make their own works. And I'm just going to step aside the whole literary idea of every work is in dialogue with the previous works that came before it, because that's that's a whole that's a whole thing. We don't have time for that. That's like a whole episode itself. But what I am going to say is that if we're just using this definition of like fan fiction writers use other people's worlds or characters to make their own works, then I'd argue that some of the most famous literary pieces, at least in English literature, I'm not audience folks. I am not well versed in any of the literature that's on English. So you have to excuse any gaps in my knowledge there. At least some of the most famous literary works in English literature are fan fiction. So the first example, I the the oldest example I can think of, and there might be older, but this is what I could think of off the top of my head, is the Aeneid, which is a Roman epic poem by Virgil, who who writes a poem about a a Greek character from the Iliad called Aeneas, who is a really minor character from the Iliad. And basically, in my opinion, the Aeneid is like a fan fiction sequel to the Iliad with, oh, this one minor character in the Iliad was actually secretly awesome the entire time. And also they came to Rome and founded sort of the Roman lineage and thus ties us Romans to the mythic Trojans who mingled with the gods, sort of tying in a lot of sort of divine heritage to the Roman people. Also, Look how awesome this dude was from the Iliad and how awesome he is because he's our founder. And that's really interesting. So, yeah, that's that's one piece which I would consider to be fan fiction. Another piece of what I think is famous English literature. I say English, but actually the need was in Latin. But You know what I mean? Famous in the literature academia canon. Another famous piece of literature, which I think is basically fan fiction, is Paradise Lost by John Milton. So Paradise Lost is a, another poem, which is basically a retelling of the Genesis story, including bits about the fall of Lucifer. And if you really sort of break down what's in Paradise Lost versus what's actually in Genesis, I feel like you could make a rather convincing argument that Paradise Lost has a lot more to do with the modern conception of Genesis than Genesis itself, but it is fan fiction of Genesis. Like it's John Milton taking the characters that are in Genesis and doing his own spin on them. And so I'm talking about famous pieces of literature, but you know, this doesn't even begin to cover retellings of stories. West Side Story is essentially a, a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. That isn't fan fiction. I don't know what is. The Lion King is a retelling of Hamlet and The Magnificent Seven, which is a Western movie. I don't think you've seen. I haven't seen that. It's a retelling of Seven Samurai. And I think as humans, we gravitate towards seeing old ideas presented in a novel way. Right. Which is why we like these retellings. It's why we like seeing, you know. Sherlock Holmes in the 25th century or whatever that cartoon show was called. Sherlock Holmes in the 25th century is a cartoon. Yeah, I probably should have gone for the BBC Sherlock. Yeah, but and Sherlock Holmes is a great example of something that's been redone in various settings. And again, that could be like an AU or what. I don't know if we define that from the start, but that's like alternate universe. Yeah. Kind of setting. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Better, better Sherlock Holmes examples of retelling so there's the sherlock of the bbc which i think is the more famous version and then at the same time there's also an american tv show called elementary that's right which yeah this might be a controversial opinion but i like elementary more than i like sherlock i've heard that from some people uh, so house house is another retelling of sherlock though in a medical setting mm -hmm. and of course in house he doesn't go by sherlock so here we have removed here we make the characters a little bit more original in a sense because we are putting them with like they do have some similarities with the mm -hmm. with sherlock and such but they are i would say that they do take on a little bit of a different yeah. feel to them so there's like levels of like how far you are manipulating the, the original structure yeah you can manipulate the characters to a degree you can manipulate the plot to a degree and so on and so forth 
So what G is talking about so far is like about retellings and how even that can be interpreted as a type of quote unquote fan fiction in a sense. But if we want to really go into like what it is that most people would conceive of what fan fiction is when they hear that word fan fiction, what we're probably going to get is uh, we're going to trace this back to the 1800s. And I'm going to pull up an article because it's a very well done article and we're going to link it in the show notes. So this is an article by Jacqueline Rich. Rich. It's called Not Just Lustful Literature, Self-Liberation Through Fan Fiction. And again, we will link this article in the show notes. And so the article starts out kind of how we're starting out this podcast with an established history. And so we, as, you know, podcast hosts, we want to first kind of do what this author is doing in the article, which is to establish that, first of all, fan fiction is not a new thing, even in the modern sense of it. So Hugo Gernsback is widely considered the father of modern science fiction and saw fiction as a means of education. And after he published science fiction stories in popular magazines, audiences became inspired by his creative narratives and, in response, quickly started to write stories of their own. So fans began to read each other's work and soon held the first Worldcon, or World Science Fiction Convention, in 1939. And so thus fan fiction was born from this time. This was in 1939 that we get this convention that centered around these creative narratives. And science fiction was the genre that these were centered around. I'm taking this again from this article. And it's really fascinating to hear this history for me because I was able to track down something that was really cool. But I will read again from the article. But fan fiction didn't just jump from a science fiction magazine to the web. It needed to take a couple different paths to get there. One of the most significant ones being the creation of the fanzine. Yes, this was a thing, a fan magazine. And the fan magazine that was really big in 1967 was called Spockanalia, and it centered around the TV show Star Trek. It was even deemed by Star Trek's creator, Gene Roddenberry, as required reading for every new writer and anyone who makes decisions on show policy. The zine quickly blasted off in popularity and played a critical role in the development of the subcategory of slash fan fiction. And so people used to, like before the internet had fan fiction, people got their fan fiction in magazines. In this time setting, because this was like before we had a lot of canon homosexual characters. Yeah. So. In this sense, slash fiction took the commonly deemed heterosexual characters and placed them in situation with romantic undertones. And so at the time, the most common slash fic centered around Captain Kirk and Spock and is credited as the first widely circulated same-sex couple within the slash genre, as established by the 105-page fic The Ring of Sasha, written by Jennifer Gutridge. And I... I researched that fic. So I want to talk about the Ring of Sashern incident because this made me so fascinated. The Ring of Sashern, as mentioned, was a 105-page fic that was written around the time of 1976 or so. It was written by Jennifer Gutridge, and it was passed around only by her to her friends. And basically, they just had photocopies of this fic. Yeah. And it was never her intention to get this fic published. But about 10 years later, a a magazine called Alien Brothers that produced a lot of Kirk Spock slash fic ended up publishing it against her will. And I ended up on the search for this fan fiction. As I'm learning about the history, I'm like, is there a published version on the web now? It's been since 1986 that Alien Brothers would have published this against Jennifer's will. I found out that Jennifer has passed away. I'm finding posts on Tumblr like, I'm in search of this fan fiction. Does anybody have it? Somebody finds out that a Texas university has one of the last known copies issues of the Alien Brothers magazines that has the published version of her fic. Okay. People are asking, can someone at this university scan it and upload it? I finally find out that two years ago, it gets uploaded to the Internet Archive. I feel very conflicted about this because we don't have the ability to ask Jennifer anymore what now she would think about this work being widely distributed. Mm -hmm. 
we can imagine that at the time, some of her feelings about it being published are because like, okay, it represents a homosexual work at the same sex couple. And she might not want to have to be tied to that work for various reasons. So I felt conflicted, but ultimately I decided it is out there on the internet archive now. And so we will go ahead and post the link to the internet archive where you can see the entire Alien Brothers issue is linked, is scanned in, but you can find specifically the Ring of Sashern and how they do credit her in it. And this is how they introduce the Ring of Sashern. So it says, written probably before 1976, the story has never before appeared in a fanzine. It is one of the first and certainly the best underground K slash S tales, Kirk slash Bocktails circulated very privately and discreetly in manuscript photocopies only. Ring of Sashern set the pattern for many early KS stories and had many imitators, but none surpassed it. The British author is well known for her sensitive and accurate character portrayals and skillful handling of plot, action, description, and unusual themes and ideas. And I was intrigued when I was reading this. She writes elegantly and really, like they say, with her representation of the characters it is really stunning i know i when i was seeing tumblr posts about her and this work they referred to her almost like the mother of fan fiction of slash fic i thought that was really cute so women led this movement yeah for the most part it was a lot of women leading this movement i was gonna ask you because i felt conflicted researching this document Mm -hmm. for me it feels like a historic document and it's there on the web but how do you feel about accessing this material? I guess I'm of the opinion that, so, you know, to be clear, it's not great that this work was published against her will. Not good at all. But the fact of the matter, it was published. And like you said, it's, it was at least a part of the movement to bring, like, Star Trek back on the air, it sounds like. Because I know there's, like, one of the reasons why Star Trek was able to push for survival was because of how fan fiction sort of grew its popularity while it was off the air. So it's, it's a historical document at this point. And yeah, we can't ask her. We can't really know for sure what her opinions would be, which I think is like most regrettable. And at the same time, this is a historical thing. Yeah, I mean, stuff gets published posthumously all the time. Another thing that I had thought of is because it had made it because we've made it farther as a society from that point in time as the issues like have progressed now a homosexual pairing is not unusual not unusual anymore because that's more common i have a question yeah i guess my modern day conception of slash fiction is that it's just any relationship pairing does it actually just refer to homosexual i was hesitating about my definition of slash fic yeah because I was like, oh, wait, I think I do remember it being used mostly exclusively for homosexual pairings. Okay. And that's true. Okay. So I have to say slash fic is primarily still used to describe specifically homosexual, homosexual pairings. Okay. So that is the most common, still the most common, even though the slash is used in like you can still have a couple together. Yeah. That is a heterosexual couple or whatever. Yeah. That is not commonly referred to as a slash fic. Okay. So current platforms to get fan fiction. There's fanfiction.net. Yeah. There's also Wattpad, but I don't go on Wattpad and I don't know what that is really. And the one that I use the most is Archive of Our Own or AO3. And AO3 won a Hugo Award in 2019, mm-hmm. actually. And I will just pull up, we will also link that article in the show notes. This is also mentioned in the, in the other article where I pulled out the bit, bit about history. So it said that, it says AO3's award is a recognition of its alternative model of authorship, one that operates outside the publishing world or academia, one where authorship is collective rather than individual, and one where artworks are appropriative and transformative. And I really like that because it goes back to the community-based thing yeah, and liberation. When I think about AO3, I think about that it is very much a community of people and that the works there are transformative. They are trying to, a lot of them, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them are trying to, I would say, make space for people that are not often included 
whether that's the characters, you know, making space for characters and therefore readers that are not often included in these stories. Yeah. And doing it better than the original authors in some ways. Should I, should I go on my Star Wars rant now? Sure. What is, what is your Star Wars rant? I'm so curious. Okay. So, all right. We're, all right. So let's start off. I'm a fan of Star Wars in most of its iterations, but I'm sort of, so when, so when it comes to movie making, I think a lot of people put way too much emphasis on the director. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to deny the director has an important job. I also feel like we put such an emphasis on the director that it often goes to their head. And then they're like, well, this is my, this is my work. And like obvious, I mean, this is, this is the problem with famous, successful people in general. Like once you become so famous, you're like, well, or so famous. It's like, well, I can do no wrong. Like I've already, I've already proven how not wrong I can be without realizing like all of the assistance you got to get to that point. And then you start refusing assistance. So for example, like George Lucas is great in many things. Dialogue is not one of them. I think a lot of people like told was able to tell was like, no, this is this is stupid dialogue. We're gonna redo it to something else. And in fact, my favorite movie of the original trilogy is Empire Strikes Back, which wasn't directed by George Lucas. It was directed by Erwin Kirshner, I think. And anyway. But it wasn't directed by George Lucas. It was directed by somebody else. But, you know, come prequel time. He's now George. He's now the George Lucas, right? He is the the father of Star Wars, and so what he says goes, even though he has a lot of things which don't actually work. Like not the best ideas. Not the best ideas. Dialogue is still really bad, and now there's no one to tell him no. This dialogue is terrible. Mm-hmm. So, and there's a certain point. Oh, speaking of fan fiction. The idea of Coruscant as being the capital planet did not come from George Lucas originally. It was actually created in the Expanded Universe books. And then when George Lucas was like looking to make the prequel trilogy, he was like, oh, I'll take Coruscant from the prequel, from the Expanded Universe books, which I did not create. Authors created them. And then I'll pop it into the movies and make it canon. So speaking of fan fiction, like here's an example of a form of fan fiction, you know, somebody playing with somebody else's ideas being turned being into canon. canon. Which actually happens more often than you think. Yeah. Yeah. For a given value of how much you consider canon to be important. Right. So with the prequel trilogies, I know there are some people who are probably going to disagree with me on this, but I don't, I don't think it's a well-told story. And I have heard... I've heard other people like give their pitches on what they, if they were given like complete creative control of the prequel trilogy, you know, given kind of what we know now and wanted to make their own changes, like how they would have done it. And, you know, there's a certain point where, you know, I feel like despite the fact that George Lucas created Star Wars, there are now people who get Star Wars better than George Lucas. And I think this is reflected in a bunch of ways. Star Wars is still not part of the film reg- National Film Registry because George Lucas refuses to turn over the original print of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the National Registry is trying to preserve things like the original print of movies. Mm-hmm. So George, the only thing George Lucas is willing to give to the public is, well, I say like he still has creative control. I guess Disney probably is able to do that as they want, but that's a whole different thing. But for the longest time, George Lucas just refuse to let the original version of Star Wars be in the wild. It's only the special editions that you can get with like added scenes and added special effects. So that's why Star Wars is still not a part of the, or at least as of before the Disney buyout, Star Wars is still was not a part of the National Film Registry. So the basic gist is I feel like despite the fact that something may have been created by someone, I think somebody else can get the ideas of that story better than the original creator. Mm -hmm. And Star Wars is sort of my prime example for that. I think especially when you were saying that George Lucas went back to the writing and then reincorporated that planet or incorporated that planet back in. Because I think a lot of times people don't realize like how much fan fiction actually inspires writers. Like I know there are some TV shows that they've gone back and read fan fiction that people are writing and been like, oh, we could do a sh- we could do an episode based off of that and been inspired by it. Yeah. 
So what are the purposes of fan fiction? And there are, let me tell you, a whole lot of them. It really depends person to person. There's just like the pure enjoyment, just reading something you enjoy. It doesn't yeah. have to be more complicated than that. There is what I think is one of the most important aspects of liberation is that the media representation of normally or traditionally underrepresented characters. Yeah. And specifically, one that I found that was an article I found that was really interesting was this article on disability in fan fiction. And we'll link it in the show notes. I'm going to bring it up. And it is entitled Enabling slash Disabling Fan Fiction and Disability Discourse. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read the abstract, but we'll tag it in the show notes. And it's a pretty fascinating article, academic article. And this is written by Amy Leah Clemens, a PhD and associate professor of English at Francis Marion University. And the abstract is, while fan fiction ostensibly provides a safe space to explore and challenge ideologies about any belief media texts reify, a review of fan studies literature shows little attention to disability from scholars in the field. This erasure seems odd since Archive of Our Own, the fanfiction archive associated with the Organization for Transformative Works, lists disability, in quotes, in its list of most popular tags, and most fandoms include a significant body of text that disable its characters. So for example, blindness, deafness, injuries leading to mobility impairments, and other visible and invisible disabilities feature strongly as tropes in fan fictions themselves. Clearly, fandom has something to do with disability of all kinds, physical, cognitive, and emotional. And so this talks about what it is like to explore disability in fan fiction and to see oneself in fan fiction. So it's also interesting that the things that get the most, like, what normally gets noticed the most in fan fiction is like LGBTQ issues often come up. Like there's a large body of, as we already mentioned, like gay male yeah. characters. And so there's also, uh, as we said, women largely drove a movement and there was a subversive nature to slash fiction at, at the time. So there is already a recognition of how important it was for the gender and sexuality movement. But disability remains like one of the most popular tags. And so it's really interesting to read this work in the article. There is something more substantial in the intersection between fandom and disability. Instead of just inserting disability into the growing field of social positions, and in particular how scholars describe fan fiction in terms of disability agency and access. And this article attempts to show how fan fiction may be seen as another expression of the ways ability and disability are constituted by our cultural practices. So to do so, fan fiction is considered not as a set of practices, but as an artifact that reflects agency building and agency denying systems in popular culture. So I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And this, I mean, this goes to, there's a lot of different underrepresented people that can be shown in fan fiction besides just gay characters. There are retellings of all sorts of popular fandoms, popular works that include like trans versions of certain characters, black versions of certain characters. And obviously, like sometimes when we think of like, oh, well, do we really just want to make that character? I think there's like a, a kind of a, a debate about like, do we just want to make that character X characteristic? Yeah. Or should we create something new? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That is its own thing. I mean, I think both are valid. Both are valid, yeah. Uh, like I said, we've done so many, there are so many retellings of Sherlock. There are so many different interpretations of that character. Like, you know, if somebody came out with a new adaptation of Sherlock with Sherlock as a trans character, I wouldn't blink an eye. Trans mask or trans femme, either <laughs> way, would be interesting. Right now, I'm actually listening to an audiobook called Wrath Goddess Sing which is a retelling of the Iliad with Achilles being a trans woman. Oh, nice. Yeah. How is it so far? I am enjoying it, though. It is, there's an interesting tension between, I think, the sort of modern conception of a protagonist versus the Greek epic conception of a protagonist. Where it's like, oh yeah, like, these are deeply flawed people. In a way, that I don't think a lot of modern protagonists can have flaws, but I mean, Greek protagonist like greek epic protagonists tend to be like half flaws to bordering on being super unlikable 
So there's an interesting tension there. It's hard to say like if I'm truly enjoying the work, but it is interesting to listen to. One of the things with trans narratives that I find liberating is that you can, for me, I get to read a story about a character that I identify with or that I enjoy. And then I can play out how certain things might sound to me or like, oh, I never thought about transness in that way. Or, oh, that really resonates with me as a trans person. And I can explore that in a way that feels familiar because I'm I'm familiar to that. Like the character is familiar to me. Mm-hmm. And there was this one fan fiction I remember reading with a trans mass character. And the way that they referred to the character they were referring to, the person's genitalia. And they kept saying like, his cunt. And I remember reading that. Oh, I like that. It just, it felt very naturally written. Yeah. It made me reflect on like what I feel as a trans person. And that's something that I'm not sure I would have discovered elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, maybe I would have. I don't know. But here I am just like reading a fan fiction and I get to see that. Another reason is when we have different visions of how the story should go. That's another reason to read or write fan fiction. Yeah. So I put this note in. I think you can go back and listen to my Star Wars rant about how there could be different visions of how a story should go. Another example, which I'll be talking about later on the show, is Mass Effect, because I got some issues with how that ended. And it's it's nice to see other people sort of reconceptualize and take the story in their own direction, since I don't really like how the quote-unquote canon version ended. Definitely. And I think about with different visions of how the story should go, it makes me think about there's a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction, obviously, like a lot, a lot. I think it might dominate archive of our own overall. And I just recently found out X introduced me to this like subcultural phenomenon within the Harry Potter fan fiction framework, which is that there's a whole thing, a whole movement to write that Harry was adopted by goblins. Okay. And that's like a subcultural thing. So there's a bunch of fan fiction written in that framework where like goblin society is very friendly towards children and like wants to caretake them. This is so lighthearted and wonderful. Harry gets to have like a pleasant childhood. And so it's like different, again, different visions of how the story should go. And so instead of being in a very toxic, abusive childhood, we get to see Harry have a an interesting, different conception of childhood. Yeah, I think I've heard of, I haven't read it, but I've heard of like a Harry Potter fan fiction called Methods of Rationality, which is basically like, what if, what if instead of being terrible people, these were like rational scientists or atheists? I forget. Basically, what if Harry grew up being raised in a super logical family and how that would affect the story plot of Harry Potter? And from what I remember reading on TV tropes, basically, from what I remember, supposedly super long. I haven't actually read it myself because it was just too much for me. And I'm not that much into Harry Potter fan fiction. But basically, it, it seemed like the goal was to write basically as much of the original seven books, but solve all the problems in year one. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think this also might go back to sort of having different visions of how the story should go, because I think... From what I remember, reading the Harry Potter books and movies, there's some characters which get moments of redemption, which some people don't feel like are earned, like Petunia of the Dursleys. I think there's like a moment where she's like, my sister died too. I, I think in the books and the movies, it's supposed to be like sort of a moment of, oh, think of Petunia's pain and how she's a complex human being. And it's like, well, yeah, your sister died might have been nice if you treated her son like a human being rather than like a punching bag for 11 years. I think, again, going back to Harry Potter, I feel like there's a lot of conflict on how fans view Snape and whether he's a quote-unquote actual good guy. So, And there's like shades of gray there that fanfic authors have been able to explore way better than the original author. Yeah. And I know like Draco, like Draco redemption arcs are very popular also in Harry Potter fan fiction. So Draco and Mother Pants. That's that's a whole trope on TVTropes.org. Yep, yep, yep. By the way, if you're listening to this episode and, and been wondering like, oh, what is TVTropes.org? Let me give you a content warning right now. TVTropes.org is a black hole which will suck away your time and attention. I would argue that this whole episode has been pointing people towards things that will suck away their time and attention, namely archive of our own. But 
maybe I'm biased. I mean, yeah, I, I've never really been on Archive of Their Own. I've mostly used fanfiction.net for my fanfiction. I would highly recommend you try out Archive of Our Own. I like how it's set up. I think you can filter better. I think the tagging system's really nice. I think the community is a really supportive community. I like what the people there are doing. It has a, it just has a much better vibe than fanfiction.net overall from what I, from what I can feel. Okay. And the quality does seem to be generally like in a direction much better overall. That's not to say that there's not like bad quality stuff. And again, that's subjective, but so we had already kind of talked about reclaiming space, which goes back to like people who are underrepresented in these stories now get to have themselves represented in a way, whether that be their race, gender, sexuality, disability, and so on and so forth. So this fanfiction can be a way to reclaim space. And the next purpose of fanfiction that we wanted to discuss was simply getting better at your writing or practicing writing. Yeah. Yeah, I saw this note and I put a note of myself about how I can think of at least two authors who got their start writing fanfiction. And I'm sure there's more that I don't know of. And, you know, I think it's a way to sort of practice your literary craft, find your own style, and also just get your work out there. Like, unfortunately, if you're trying to get traditionally published, like being a known, having some sort of portfolio, even if it's fanfiction, makes you more of a known factor than just some you know, random person submitting manuscripts to a bunch of literary agents. You know, if you could put some sort of portfolio of like, look, this is my body of work. And, you know, I, admittedly, it doesn't really translate to the publishing industry. But, you know, I, you know, I, I have received feedback and reacted well to it. You know, I am popular in certain circles on the internet. I feel like these are all aspects which if you play it the right way it can help you get traditionally published if that's what you're aiming for absolutely and i had a linkedin article i will link this in the show notes from the novel smithy which is why fan fiction why every novelist should write it and it talks about some advantages as a writer to writing fan fiction so it starts off by saying first off is fan fiction really that bad i would argue no and What's one of the most difficult parts to writing a novel is often the building the in-depth story worlds and meaningful characters. And that's why going off of a world that you're familiar with and characters that you can already go off of can be a good way to jumpstart. So you don't have to start from scratch. And so that's the first thing. You have a starting point and then it says practice makes perfect and fan fiction is one of the best ways to practice writing. So with fan fiction, you can borrow or ignore as much as you want. There is like total creative freedom with borrowing or ignoring. So you can use all of the book's existing characters or create an entirely new cast. You can set it in the in the setting that it is in, or you can create a new modern setting, just like we were talking about with uh, Sherlock having like a lot of different settings. So it's up to you to how much you want to change. The next thing that it mentions is that it builds confidence and it gives you a safe and low risk platform to practice and hone your writing skills. So I have published fan fiction and I've not really received, I know that this has not necessarily been your experience, G, but I have not received, and this is also, I, I publish on AO3 and I have not received degrading or demeaning remarks on my works. And again, I think that's like overall the community there just seems very supportive all in all. And so, you know, I think the feedback tends to be more constructive and you can also like meet other people who are writing fan fiction and a lot of authors will show each other their fan fiction before they publish it and then like tag each other in their work and say like, thanks for reading this ahead of time or beta reading for me. So it's a low risk platform that you can hone your writing skills there. They go into some more reasons why it is a great avenue to explore your own, to explore or hone your writing. And so we will link this article in the show notes. And next, so we've talked about the writing aspect, which for me, definitely, I love writing fan fiction because it has helped me to hone my writing. And it can also help you with your reading. There are people encouraging, both from the elementary school level all the way up through college level, encouraging students to read and write fan fiction. And I'll pull up this article. It's called Fan Fiction to Support Struggling Writers by Kelly Bippert. 
PhD, and she talks about reading literacy. So even though it says to support struggling writers, it's, it also talks about reading. So I have a specific point that I wanted to bring up too. Struggling adolescent readers and writers can develop the ability to effectively use new concept learning obtained through digital multimodal literacies to address traditional written texts. Through participation in fan fiction sites, adolescents have also been shown to develop and reinforce literacy skills important for in-school literacies. Kerwood's study of adolescents participating in Hunger Games fan site showed that adolescents were able to make personal connections and critically evaluate events and characters from the trilogy. The nature of the online platform, along with the adolescents' participation within the fan community, allowed for increased opportunities for students to practice these important literary skills. Popular media can be a powerful tool for teaching literacy concepts, plot, and character traits in language arts classroom. So this, sorry, there's a lot going on in this article about using like whether it's a video-based or if it's written text like fan fiction. But the idea is that there are people using fan fiction to actually encourage people to read more. Mm-hmm. And to transfer reading things like fan fiction and engaging with a fan community, that was the second part that actually engaging with the fan community itself is encouraging and can actually improve reading skills. Yeah. And so, you know, fan fiction has uses beyond just like, you know, pure enjoyment or as we had said before, like slash fic can be you know, hot and spicy. There's a lot of really amazing kink content out there, but there's also just like, you know, stuff that is good for developing these base skills. And there is another article. Hold on one second. Again, from... So obviously, yeah, fan fiction, there's a lot of... There can be a lot of spicy stuff on the internet. So if you are, you know, using fan fiction to teach two children, it needs to be, like, monitored and cultivated. Yeah. And so there is an article that talks about reading fan fiction and a librarian from a school in North Carolina, actually. And she, her name is Julia Stivers. She specifically curates the fan fiction, but, and she makes specific recommendations to kids who come to her being like, I don't like reading, but you know, and I want to find something that's representative of me. And she says, the main thing I love about fan fiction is that it's so inclusive. She said, fan fiction can provide students with stories they might not be getting as part of the curriculum. But she says, that her school is about 90% BIPOC students, Black, Indigenous, and people of color at their school. And she says, I want my collection to be 90% representative of that. But the texts that they have in the library are not representative of that. So she's like, how do I give these students texts that are representative of them? And so she goes on to fan fiction sites and finds appropriate content that the children could be interested in based off of what fandoms they're into um, and recommends them. And so if you're a student who doesn't read a lot, I can probably find a fanfic story for you. Let's say you love manga and anime. There's literally hundreds of thousands of stories I can find online. It's another access point for literacy for kids. And so she says, as a librarian, Stivers will read in advance anything she recommends to students in order to monitor for what's age appropriate. And in the era of distance learning, she said, reading fanfic can be far more accessible than waiting for a physical book. It's a lot easier to print out pages of fanfic for students to read instead of waiting for a physical book to arrive. And so, again, these are just other reasons why beyond what we would normally think of when we think reading fanfiction. Wow, it's almost like when you meet students halfway and make it a topic that they're interested in or passionate about, it's much easier to teach them stuff. Exactly. Yeah, there was another article. It wasn't this one, but I was telling you, G, before the episode started that another one of the articles that I read had said that there was a college professor who like always did this intro essay and like was getting just like shit essays. And then she was like, why are these kids not turning in like good quality stuff? And so she just decided she was like, you know what? Your first essay, instead of an essay, just write fan fiction. And then she's got really good quality stuff. And again, it goes back to what you just said, like, oh, maybe we should like give kids access to what they're interested in. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who has, at least in their teenage years, was able to speed through Lord of the Rings a couple of times and then struggle with reading Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which I realized they're very different. And one of them is in Middle English or not Middle. It's, it's an old enough text that the reading is difficult. If you're not super into it, 
it makes it a lot harder to read. If you are like, and you know, what, whatever hooks you is whatever hooks you. Like for me, like I can read fantasy and science fiction most days, every day. But you know, if you tell me, oh, I want you to read this physics science article about how protons, electrons are interacting with each other. Like I would not be able to get through that. I'm just being honest right now. But I know people who actually do read science articles for fun because it interests them. So, you know, I think I didn't realize this would be turning into Let's Reform Education podcast, but... Uh... I mean, it's a little bit of that because I think what I what we wanted to do, or what at least one of my visions, and I think, I, I think what was a shared vision by you when we had talked about this was people think fan fiction is just like, oh, you're just, you just want to get lost in those characters that you fell in love with on that show. And it's like, it, it is, but it's also more than that. I think a lot of the negative conception of fan fiction comes from, again, like the idea that it's, it's fans it's, and not professionals. Mm, like it's not a real literature, it's not a real medium. Yeah. But yet it is literally doing the same things that other people do. Or so where most celebrated works do, including things like modern TV shows and John Milton and The Aeneid by Virgil. At least one thing that I think modern day fan fiction represents is sort of a lowering of a lowering of barrier when it comes to writing. With the internet or even with fanzines, like the ability to to make something and then get to the point where somebody else can read it that's not like your immediate circle of friends is much easier than it ever has moved before. You don't have to go to a big publishing house. You don't even have to go to a fanzine and submit it to a fanzine and hope that the fanzine editor likes your stuff enough to put it in their fanzine. You can just go to one of these websites and write, take whatever you've written and hit publish. And it's out there. And of course, if you lower the barrier for people to do stuff, more people are going to do it. And not all of it's going to be high quality. Like, you know, it, it's just not. Especially for people who, who can't do this full time as their job and can't afford to pay for or can't either get people to help edit their stuff or can't afford to pay for editors. And, you know, as much as we like to think of writing books as being completely author-driven affair, it's not. Their authors work with teams, they work with editors, they work with marketing people. That's right. They work with the cover illustrator to get like the right cover for their books. Like it's, it is a team effort to get a book published. That's right. Yeah. It's not like, I mean, even just me as an aspiring author, someone who is writing fan is like, I get ideas from lots of people. Like I run ideas by other people. Like it's for me, it's a, it's a group effort even in, in that level. So when you want to publish something and you are a successful author who has made, you know, gotten an award or made some level, you know, top, whatever the, top, what are those books, the lists called? New York. Oh, yeah. New York Times bestseller, bestseller list. list. Yeah. Which is easily conned. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very <laughs> easily conned. It's like you have so much. First of all, we could go into the racial structure, classes structure, and ableist structures behind that. Like how much money, how much like does that person have the physical and mental ability that society puts standards on, right? I think that ultimately also comes down to a money issue because if you have access to enough money to overcome the barriers of those things, could you produce, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or buy your way. It'd be much easier for you to spend everyday writing if I didn't have to worry about doing a job which drains my mental energy. And when I get home, I don't have to, you know fight entropy and clean up my apartment like you know that takes a lot of energy like going to work right making sure everything's done trying to remember how to be social like if you like work takes up like what a third of your day if not more i think my biggest barrier to writing is even though i do i don't have a nine-to-five job but one of my biggest barriers to writing has been that i have a physical disability and like I have had a pretty bad shoulder issue for a while that has limited my my typing ability. And I do have some coping mechanisms and some tools to help me overcome that. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to write more. But certainly writing a whole novel takes a large amount of effort, physical, mental and monetary. 
yeah. investments that, you know, it helps to have a large support network, a large support network. And honestly, you're probably going to have some privilege behind you in some way or another that's helping you out. So I think you're right. Being able to publish on the Internet, it makes it easier for people with various backgrounds yeah. to be able to self-publish. Yeah. And yes, that means not all of the quality is going to be good. But I would say don't judge the whole of fan fiction by like. Yeah, it's it's a little bit like saying I'm trying to think of a good metaphor here. It's a little bit like saying all spaghetti Westerns are bad because there's a bunch of bad spaghetti Westerns, you know, like, yeah, I mean, there is a bunch of sort of low effort movies put out in that genre because they're just trying to make a buck because Westerns were the big movies at the time. But you don't judge the entire genre or subgenre based off a subcategory of that. You don't base a whole subgenre based off the worst of that subgenre, right? Like, And I would say if you are someone who is listening to this episode and you've been skeptical about reading fan fiction or even writing it, you're like, oh, well, I've thought about writing fan fiction, but... I don't know if it's like I'm going to be not going to be producing like high quality works or whatever. Well, from the reading perspective, just find, first of all, find the fandom that you enjoy, really. Find if you're going for quote unquote slash fic or fan fictions with pairings, Mm -hmm. I should say pairings, like with their couples involved or relationships involved, pick relationships you want to see, avoid ones you don't want to see. And if you don't want any relationships, avoid ones that have relationships. And then find a plot that generally interests you. I would say also look to see if other people are generally like, you know, if people have liked this fan fiction and what they're, if there's any comments on it, so you can, you might be able to get a feel of it, what the tags are. So you can, again, be warned about any potential content that you might like or dislike, or you might be triggered by ahead of time. So like from a reading perspective, don't just willy nilly search on a work and click on a random one if you're really skeptical, because I think that's not advised. Yeah, I mean, I personally, one of the ways I find fan fictions is, again, tvtrips.org. Like, each each fandom, each fandom has a, like, there's, if it's popular enough, because it's all user-driven, you know, there's nobody, like, directing where the direction of tvtrips.org. There is, like, people, like, have fan fiction recommendations of, like, so I found a lot of Mass Effect fan fictions by going to the Mass Effect tvtrips.org website and then clicking on fanfic recommendations and going on the list and seeing what people were saying about different fan fictions, like which ones sounded interesting to me, which ones didn't, then sort of going from there. And I'm sure there's probably like a subreddit you can go to for like recommendations. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I wouldn't just like blindly click on random fan fictions. Yeah, I think if you are into a certain fandom and you go to the subreddit and you just search fan fiction, there's probably threads like recommended fan fiction. People drop their for their favorite fan fictions. Yeah. So that's a great way to find out. But on to our personal experiences. And finally, we'll, we'll just end on this note of like what G and I have enjoyed about fan fiction. Yeah. So I'll get us started here. I myself have mostly read Mass Effect fan fiction. I really love sort of the lore and story of the Mass Effect trilogy, Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3, up until like the last I mean, in some senses, it's just like the last 10 minutes that I have a problem with in Mass Effect 3. And other sessions, in other, in other senses, it's the whole game. Because like the whole game was building up to that ending. But the ending really sort of hammers at home, like how much I disliked it. So one of the main ways I sort of consume fan fiction is reading different sort of takes on the Mass Effect franchise, you know, different AUs, people telling their own version of the story, and so on and so forth. Is there a good example of an AU that you, an alternate universe that you remember or that you enjoy? I've read quite a few, some of them just because they're interesting concepts. But I think, I think one of the ones I enjoyed the most was one called Transcendent Humanity. Mm. where the concept was that humanity gets isolated from the greater galactic community and sort of develops their own technological branch that's separate from the other, the rest of the rest of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of dives into concepts like transhumanism and but one way and sort of, you know, what and sort of how humanity treats 
the concept of AI is different than the rest of the galactic community. And I thought it was really, I don't know, I liked it partially because one of the robot species is Geth. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole scene where like this Geth has been downloaded into a human body and spends a half hour eating a piece of toast because it's the first flavor sensation they've ever had. That's adorable. Which is real cute. Oh my gosh. Uh, I love that. So yeah, that's there are other ones which I could recommend, but that's that's probably one of my top favorite ones. Partially because for a while I thought it was a dead fic. Oh, I hate those experiences, but it came back. It came back because of the pandemic. Oh, I'm about to tell the opposite story. So yeah. The last time it got updated was like in 2016. And so I just kind of given up hope that it'd ever be updated again. And then the pandemic rolled around and suddenly updates started happening. So yeah, it, it's nice to be able to see a, a dead fic come back to life and be completed. I bet that feels real good. I'm happy for you. As for my own experiences with fan fiction. In terms of writing it? In terms of writing it, yeah. I, I did do like a Helsing anime fan fiction back when I was a teenager and basically was sort of a, a self-insert original character, which wasn't great, you know. Present me looking back at old news work, I, I can acknowledge that it wasn't wasn't anything that was going to revolutionize the Helsing anime fan fiction community. But I stopped because somebody wrote a rather a rather extensive, very negative review. And if I remember correctly, like part of the part of the review was talking about like, you know, how much I liked gun porn. Looking back as like, it's Helsing. Like I'd say good like 40 to 60% of that show is how awesome these guns are. Right. So looking back, I was like, that, that's a weird criticism to have a fan fiction. That sure. whoever wrote that criticism can go fuck themselves. I hate them on your behalf. I literally do. But as we were sitting here, I remembered that there is another fan fiction that I tried to write, which was a Doctor Who Mass Effect crossover, Ooh. where the concept. So. Mass Effect, you kind of get to make your own Shepard, and you know, Ray Shepard gets to be different. So I had like this idea of like some sort of cross-dimensional thing happens, and like there's the Doctor, and this like more and more versions of Shepard keep on showing up and interacting with each other. I forget my original idea of how I was going to end that, but that was the concept of like having the Doctor interact with various versions of Shepard and then having to work together to figure out the problem and sort out the dimensional slash timeline issues. That's really cool. I like that. And yeah, that's that's my very my very limited experience with fan fiction for the most part. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. But. Well, I have I was gonna talk about writing first, but let me go to reading because I just want to say like I'm very happy for you that you that the dead fic came back to life for you. However, yeah. for me, I started out reading this wonderful fanfic during the pandemic. Yeah. It started getting released and then it stopped mm. and it's been dead for over a year. Mm. It's 50 chapters long. I'll even link it in the show notes because it's so good. It's an Ace Attorney fan fiction. It's called Indefensible. And as I found out, the author, I think it's Zombolog, is a, a published author of their own original stories as well. So that's pretty cool. And you can tell this person is a really amazing writer. Ace Attorney is not the biggest fandom on archive of our own not even by a long shot but this fic has over a thousand kudos which are like likes or loves which is amazing a wild amount of kudos yeah for an ace attorney fan fiction and it's like i said it's 50 chapters long and it's dead right now so yeah. we don't know where it's going it's a well-formulated murder mystery with a edgeworth phoenix slash pairing as well as some uh, lesbian Maya and, oh gosh, what's her name? I can't help you. No, you can't help me. Edgeworth's sort of sister-esque figure, Francesca. Francesca? Francesca. Maya and Francesca. It's a really freaking well-written fan fiction that just enveloped me. The mystery is so good. Yeah. The characters are extremely well-written and it's well-paced. And I love that. I love the pacing. Oh, and there's some other pairings as well going on. So really great relationship energy all around. But it's been dead. But reading fan fiction for me is, I mean, primarily it is about getting to connect to the characters and to see them in different like settings and scenarios. 
I do love a good, for me, like I love seeing like a good kink AU, a good BDSM alternative universe where a lot of those like BDSM alternative universes or kink AUs have to do with like the society is split into people are like normally a quote unquote like assigned dom at birth or assigned submissive at birth in a way. And then they like, when they become an adult, they realize that they're dominant or submissive and then they have to like find a a partner and it it, it tends to be very monogamous in that way and i don't like that about that au style yeah the other thing i don't like about that au style is that it also tends to be very like not switch phobic if there is mention of switches at all first of all normally they pretend like switches don't exist but if they mention that switches are a thing it's like oh it's so rare that there's a switch it's like i like i obviously enjoy kink And I like power exchange. So I do like to entertain a good kink AU every once in a while. But I like to, I also just like to connect with characters in really silly ways. I love to read a good like group text fanfic where I'm just like reading the different characters in a group text and it just makes me laugh. It's silly. It's funny. It gives me, it makes me smile. Okay. I don't think I've ever seen that kind of fan fiction, which makes sense since it doesn't really seem to be a, a mass effect yeah, I guess what is something what is something that like you have that's very character? Oh, I could send you a Star Trek one. Star Trek group text. That'd be great. I read an Ace Attorney one again. I read a lot of Ace Attorney fan fiction because it's some of the best in my, that I like for my fandom tastes. So I really like to see characters doing funny, interesting or intriguing things. And I also, like I said, I read fanfic for kinky content and just to like get off. Like, I mean, fan fiction can be erotica. There's a lot of erotica in fan fiction that you can obviously filter for. So you can like read stuff that's like more explicit. As an ace kinky person, like I'm really on the hunt for the ones that are really, really kinky, but then like not that sexy. And that's... I feel like that's a difficult, uh, difficult target to hit. It is a difficult target to hit, but if occasionally I do come across a real good one. Okay. Sometimes I read fan fiction to connect with a part of my identity, which I talked about earlier, like my transness or like where I am in my trans journey or getting to see a character have like a much needed redemption arc that I was like, oh, I'm really dissatisfied with how they did this character. And I think I think it also makes me relate in that sense of like no one is irredeemable and even this shitty person can be redeemable, even like in the worst circumstances there's a way for someone to be redeemed and it involves a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the problem I have with most redemption arcs is that they're so short. Right. They don't feel earned. Right. I mean, it's not just an, I'm sorry. It's like a real. Yeah. And it's usually like a, I had a change of heart and then I go sacrifice myself. And that's the redemption arc. No, the redemption arcs that I like are about character, like human revolution. How is that person changing within themselves? And how are they going to foster positive change, not only in their own life, but in the lives of the people around them, like moving forward? Yeah. Zuko. Yeah, Zuko is a great example from Avatar. Yeah. The Last Airbender. So in terms of writing fan fiction, I have definitely written some fan fiction. Most of it's unpublished at this point, but some of it's up on AO3. I enjoy writing it as a creative exercise and to try out different writing styles, which I remember mostly like learning from my creative writing course in high school. Because after I got into college, I started writing primarily academic research writing, like very much like scientific writing, and since then have been in that realm. Although... You know, I love bringing creative styles to academic writing as well. Yeah. However, not all of my professors necessarily appreciate that. And there's a different audience for different things. So I really love getting to be creative and I hope to be able to write more. Like I just, I really do enjoy writing fan fiction, putting it out there and just seeing like, I love writing, especially when I write, if I write a kinky thing and then I see people liking it or giving me kudos and I'm like, oh, people are into the same thing I'm into. And that makes me also feel like, wow, I'm not alone. It goes back to that community aspect of like fostering a community. So yeah, I think those are my experiences. And then, oh, there's one more rec fic that I was going to recommend, which was recommended to me by X. It's a Pokemon XY fic that it's actually a series of fics. And I'll bring it up because I wanted to read the description of it. It is called I Could Command You, Be Cruel to You, Compel You. And this is the description of the fic. I feel like that title... It's setting a lot of expectations in that title. Look at that. An extremely thinly veiled meta discourse on BSM and the ways in which kink overlaps with mental slash physical health and the queer experience masquerading as what is nominally 
Pokemon XY fanfic as written by someone who hasn't played XY Pokemon XY in literally a decade. This is also a meta deconstruction of Disney death tropes and an investigation into what radical, reconstructive, and reparative justice might look like in JRPG villain settings if you take lore totally seriously and also have approximate knowledge of many things. Also, for some reason, all the titles are from a little-known Mozart opera that grabbed me like a squeaky toy and shook. So that's the description, and I'm really enjoying reading it. I think my favorite bit is if you have approximate knowledge of many things. I'm really enjoying it. It took me a little bit to get into it. The first, it's a series of fics. The first fic, I was like, okay, I'm not sure where this is going, but then... I like I went to the second one and I was like, oh, and so I gave it some time to brew. But yes, so lots of things can be explored in fan fiction. There are many, many reasons to read or write fan fiction. And I think I have now exhausted myself. So if you like us talking about fan fiction, slash fiction, coffee shop AUs, group text chats, Omegaverse. We didn't even talk about Omegaverse. Uh, Just know. It's it's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. Maybe we could we could have devoted a whole episode to that. Yeah, I've watched a whole I think hour and a half long YouTube video essay on that. So if you like us talking about all these various fan fiction stuff, you can support us by donating at the link at the bottom of the show notes, or you can share this podcast with your friends, especially those who might be resistant to reading or writing fan fiction. Or those who love fan fiction and want even more reasons to enjoy fan fiction. Or are curious and have just never explored it. Just never explored it before. And with that, this is G. This is M. Don't be afraid to love how you love. Love what you love. And love who you love. If you'd like to get in touch with either M or myself, you can tweet us at KMP Podcast. You can find us at knppodcast.tumblr.com or you can email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com You're starting HRT, you're on clubbing, Miss Social. Yeah, find me in the club. I don't know the rest of the lyrics. I'm terrible with music. Why did anybody invite me to go clubbing again? You weren't originally invited to go clubbing. You were originally invited to go to a kink event and then somehow got dragged clubbing. Yeah.